Hello, Sarepta. Wonderful to see you all. Thank you, thank you. And uh, I know that as I went through the, um, what I want to share with you this weekend uh, by Alan's, um, I think, sort of a request and agreement kind of conversation we had, um, that some of the concepts and some of the, um, the background ideas are things that I've shared before at Sarepta. But um, probably all of them are worth repeating, number one. Number two, uh, I don't want to say anything about anyone's um, short-term memory, but uh, just to say that we could all do with reminders of things, right? Uh, um, so... Two gentlemen were at the golf course getting ready for their, uh, for their round. And, uh, and the first fellow was there and he said, um, he spoke to the, uh, the uh, caddy master and he said, look, uh, I wonder if you could perhaps um, get me a game together with someone else because I have, uh, my eyesight has actually been fading and... Uh, I can't see the ball much beyond 100 meters, and so I still do hit it a little bit further than that, and so what happens is uh, I, can't, I can't see it, and so I need someone with good eyesight to be my playing partner so that we can, you know, he can help me find my ball. The guy said, oh, I've got just the man for you. He's, he's your sort of age, and he's, but he's, his eyesight is absolutely perfect. So he matched them up and the guy explained his problem to his playing partner and off they went and to the first tee and, and so the first gentleman teed up and hit his ball nicely down the fairway, just faded a little bit and into the short rough on the side and, um, and he said to the chap, did you see my ball? Did you see where it went? He said, perfectly, perfectly. And so off they went down, walked down. The other guy hit his ball, and they walked down the fairway. And then the, uh, the first gentleman said, so where did my ball go? He said, what ball? <laughs> so some, whether it's eyesight or short-term memory, one or the other is going to go at some point. Which brings me a little bit to the subject for tonight, which has to do with um, learning to minister like Jesus, and it starts with learning to see or to look like Jesus. Now, that always reminds me, when I use that phrase, it always reminds me of a, uh, uh, my, one of my dad's favorite jokes. Um, so, this is not a joke night, but I just thought <laughs> this is appropriate to start off with. So, um, so the, uh, the, the fellow went over to a guy who bred racehorses, and... Uh, and he wanted to buy a racehorse. And so he, he looked at all of them and he saw this one particular beautiful thoroughbred chestnut stallion. And he said, uh, he said, that one, I want that one. He said, he's not looking too good. He said, uh, 
He looks fantastic to me. Uh, is, what is, is there anything wrong? He said, he's not looking too good. I, he said, I'm trying to see. Is it his legs? His teeth all seem to be in place and holding himself very well. He said, I'll, I'll take him. So the guy said, okay. Bought the horse and he took him and he entered him for the race. And, um, and the race uh, day came and, um, and the gates went up and the horse ran off and then ran to the right and crashed into the fence and cra- went across the, the uh, track the other way and crashed into the other fence and knocked over a couple of other horses on the way. And, uh, and the guy realized that the horse couldn't see a thing. So he took him back. He said, I want my money back. He said, for what? You want your money? He said, because you, you sold me a blind horse. He says, I told you, he's not looking too good. <laughs> the, the first sermon of Jesus is uh, the shortest one that we can probably identify anywhere in Scripture. And it was found in, in Mark chapter 1, 14 and 15 where after, Jesus, after John had been arrested, so it's bad times, it's circumstances are not good. There is, there is difficulty, there is uh, persecution arising against the new uh, denomination that's just been formed. John has announced Jesus. Jesus has been uh, baptized by John. The, 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 the Holy Spirit has anointed him. He's called his first disciples And uh, then John gets arrested. Jesus goes to Galilee. And it says, And he proclaimed the gospel about the kingdom of God. And he said, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is near. And the word near, just by the way, means at your fingertips, within your grasp. It's right here. You can lay hold of it. Repent. Metania is the Greek word. Repent means change the way you think. Change your noose, your your mind, your attitude, your, your uh, orientation toward reality, your mental orientation toward reality. Change the way you think and keep believing in the gospel. P- keep believing in the good news. And so Jesus begins his ministry with a call for people to deal first and foremost with how they see reality. We call that a worldview. And so, uh, later on, right at the end, uh, after the the gospel story, uh, Paul is referring to a similar thing when he says in 1 Corinthians 13, and we won't read all through all of this, but I want to read from the middle. It won't be long before the weather clears and the sun shines bright. We'll see it all then. This is in the message version of 1 Corinthians 13. See it as clearly as God sees us, knowing him directly just as he knows us. But for right now, until that completeness, we have three things to do to lead us toward that consummation. Trust steadily in God, hope unswervingly, love extravagantly, and the best of the three is love. What Paul says is, and you, you probably you like, like me have memorized it in the old translation, we see through a glass darkly, we prophesy in part, we We do not know as we are known now, but we will one day know as we are known. Now, we'll talk some more probably tomorrow morning about this understanding of the kingdom of God, which is what Jesus is talking about here 
And is it something that we will only know and see in that day? Or is, there, is it already here and we can actually see it now already if we could only learn how to open our eyes in that reality? Whatever it is, and we'll find out a little bit more tomorrow, whatever it is though, the, the purpose of God is to help us understand we do not yet engage with all of the reality that he wants us to engage with. And here's the key. The key is you engage with reality on the terms in which you see reality. So before we can minister like Jesus, we have to first see like Jesus. We have to look like Jesus. Look in the sense of the verb. We have to look like Jesus. Um, so we come to the idea of what we call a worldview. What, how did Jesus see reality? Think about that for a moment. How did he see reality? Jesus was born in Israel in, uh, in a time when uh, Israel had been well-founded, well-grounded, well-taught, and every child was taught a concept of God and of reality and of life and of the way relationships work and all of these things, thoroughly taught all of those things from birth. Children were brought into a place which they called bar mitzvah, which means they became, or bat mitzvah, which means they became children of the law. That means they were trained in the law, they were accountable to the law, they, they, they uh, were able to apply the law of God in terms of the way they lived their lives. Jesus was one of those. He was a, a good Hebrew boy. You saw reality the way he had been taught to see that reality. And so Jesus saw reality. And by this stage of his life, Jesus was not only a Jewish man, but he was also a rabbi. He was called rabbi. He was taught in the law. He was a, a person who had already shown his ability to engage with the scholars of the law and, and debate with them and, uh, and, and understand and apply God's word in his life and in the lives of those he taught. So he was a rabbi. But more than that, we're going to see a little more about this later on. Here's the key in terms of Jesus. The way Jesus looked was like a person who was familiar with heaven. He knew what heaven was like. He was constantly talking about a different reality than the one that his feet were on. He was living with his feet firmly on the ground. He felt the concerns and the pain and the, and the struggle and the, and the brokenness of human beings acutely. But at the same time, he was constantly saying, um, I only do what I see my father doing. I'm speaking to you. The words that I speak are not my own, but they are the words of my father in heaven. He was constantly referring to a, a different frame of reference, a different view, a different aspect of reality. So what is a worldview? A worldview is a point, or better, many points of view. So all of us are like this person who stands on a platform, and if you take a 360-degree view from this platform, you'll see all of these things. God, people, money, work, nature, friendship 
space, ownership, love, children, time, future, past, present. All of these things are, are um, part of your, they are slices of the pie of reality in which where we stand, we are in the center of it. And we all have a way of looking through a particular lens at all of those realities, all of those paradigms. So to put it in technical terms, in technical language, a worldview is made up of a whole lot of paradigms, which are simply slices of uh, reality that we, that, that we see through. And we have different filters for each of those. And you know that very often... The conflict between people is because they will have this, they'll use the same word to describe very different things. And we argue until we die about all kinds of things. Not because that other person is wrong, just because their point of view is different. One of the best things that we need to learn how to do as human beings is to say, lend me your glasses. Let me see reality through your lenses will we'll be a lot less uh, irritable. We'll be a lot more tolerant. Uh, there's an American Indian proverb that says, do not judge a man before you have walked two moons in his moccasins. And so reality is the world. You've seen this before. This is a kind of an outline, it's my own version, but it's an outline of the map of the world that you and I grew up with if we grew up in the West. When you got, you got a map of the world in your geography books or at the CNA or whatever, that's the shape of it. Look what's in the center. What's in the center? Western Europe. It's a, it's a little above the center on the horizontal plane, but it is slap bang in the middle. So Europe, and particularly the United Kingdom, was in the center of the world. And so we talked about the west, and we talked about the east. East of where? East of the first world. Why is it called, why is Africa and other places called the third world? Third from what? Third according to who? Australia is called Down Under. Down Under from where? <laughs> if you go to America, you see a, a different map of the world. This is how their map of the world looks. What's in the center? America. In more ways than one, it's in the center of the universe, right? And then when I was in New Zealand, I saw this map of the world. They turn it the right way up to them. And for them, New Zealand is not this tiny little island that hardly exists, but it's this huge thing that encompasses most of the Pacific Ocean. So we all have our perspectives, and we call those worldviews. They, they are ways of seeing different kinds of reality. Oops, I don't know why that is like that. But a worldview, our view of the world, is the primary factor in determining not only how we deal with people, but particularly bringing it down to the subject for tonight, our theology and our lifestyle, how we view God. Um, 
I heard a great message the other Sunday preached by a friend of mine who was talking about this, the um, parable or the story that Jesus tells of the man who gets visitors in the middle of the night and uh, goes to his friend and knocks on the door to borrow a loaf of bread. You, know, you remember the story? And, um, and in that story, he says, um, he says, we sometimes think that the way that the person finally persuaded, because Jesus applies it like this, doesn't he? How much more will your heavenly Father give you if you persist, essentially, in prayer? Uh, he, he gave him not because of his, um, because he was uh, uh, in need, but because of his importunity or his, um, his persistence in prayer. And so Jesus was teaching people to not quit while, while you're praying. And my friend applied it like this, and I thought it was brilliant. He said, you need, need to understand that when we're praying, there are always three things involved. There is the need for which you are asking provision, there is God, and there is you. And the reality is, we don't have to persuade God, we have to persuade ourselves. You don't have to persuade God to do you good, because God is good. God can't help himself, he can only be good. You know, so he said, the reason why you have to hang in there to pray, is you have to hang in and wait and pray and pray until your own mind is truly convinced that God wants to bless you. So it, it was not, the problem was not with God. The problem was with the worldview of the person praying. So it affects our prayers. It affects our lifestyles. It affects our, our morals. Hebrews 11 talks about faith like this. It says, faith gives us assurance, an inner assurance about things we cannot see. By faith, we understand. By faith, we grasp with another part of ourselves, which is a mind and a heart and a soul and a spirit, if you like. We understand that the entire universe was formed at God's command, that what we now see did not come from anything that can be seen. And so, all of us operate from, in, in this kind of sequence. From an assumption comes a conclusion, comes a decision, comes an action. Assumption, conclusion, decision, action. And we're always doing that. We're always doing this very quick calculation. What is my assumption? My assumption is God is good. On the basis of that, I reach this conclusion. So ask him. And keep on asking until you get the answer. Decision, action. And so we, um, we want to look at Two kinds or two worldviews. Ah, firstly, the Western or what we call the Western and modern worldview. And that worldview works like this. Now, before I go on with this, I need to, I need to put in a disclaimer. For the sake of our um, understanding, we talk about heaven up there and earth down here, and sometimes hell underneath that, okay? It's, a, it's purely a kind of symbolism. Uh, the problem with many people, it's like when uh, Brian Habana or anybody else, or s several other people that I can think of, including, uh, what's his name in the Blitzbocker, uh, that 
Sanatla. When they score a try, they look up. And sometimes they do, they cross themselves or they do that or they whatever. Um, um, Jacques Callis does it as well when he scores 100, but he's not looking for God, he's looking at his dad apparently. Because his dad is in heaven. So they look up. Did you see that, Dad? So I, I, I need to say it, uh, put a disclaimer in about that. That's purely for symbolic reasons, but that does not mean that heaven is up there far away. What we have to understand is that when we talk about heaven, we're talking about a reality that is all around us. In the same dimension as we are living. There's a different dimension. There's something in this room right now. There is a presence in this room right now, which is in heaven and on earth at the same time. What does that mean? It means that heaven is just a, a, kind, of, a kind of moment of enlightenment away. It's not a distance that you have to travel. So, having said that, let me now tell you about the up there. Okay, so this dimension, this dimension of heaven is the dimension of religion. It's the mystical world. It includes God, it includes heaven. It also includes hell, or, or that place without God, eternity, angels, the devil, miracles, spiritualism, or spiritual realities, cosmic forces, um, angels, all of these kinds of things. So, so that's the, the, the non-material world. And again, a lot of the time people think of it as up there. So down here, on the other hand, is the material world, life. And it is material. It includes the empirical world of our senses. It includes science, empirical observation, humanity, experience, natural order, natural disasters, the secular world, physical reality, pain, problem, sickness, drought, rain, animals, uh, pollution, global warming, if there is such a thing. Anyway, um, <clears throat> these are, because Al Gore said it was all going to end last week, right? Yeah, I just thought I'd mention that. Al, you, you must have miscalculated. Um, anyway, uh, so, so, so that's, that's the, the, those are the two realities. Two realities. And in the Western worldview, there is a complete separation between those two. There is mater there's material and there's spiritual, and nothing in between. There's no connection between the two. And in fact, if you ever try to imagine a connection between the two, like you hear God speaking to you, you're regarded as insane. You've got a problem. The more television programs I watch, the more I see how, how television writers, screenplay writers and so on, are determined to make this position clear, that anyone who has faith is loony. You're abnormal if you, if you believe in another reality. It's a strong agenda, but that's not my subject. Okay, so... It's what we call the EM, the excluded middle. That's the, re the, the reality in the 
Western world. Now, in some places it is changing for the better. There, is, there are some people who have the wisdom to know that it doesn't cover all the bases. This, this two-dimensional two reality doesn't cover all the bases of what people experience. But, um, but for the most part, most people live in blissful ignorance. The operating laws in this worldview are, first of all, rational, which means that, um, that for every, for every uh, result, there is a cause. Logic or logicality, um, uh, again, that it, the, it, it's all argued from, once again, what can be demonstrable uh, in, in, uh, in physiological or physical terms. It's naturalistic. In other words, everything has mediate causes. Mediate causes. It, it, you know, it goes back to the question, who made God? Because everything has a maker. Everything has an origin somewhere. Everything has been mediated. It, also, it is also, um, everything is physical or materialistic. And... It's only if you can capture it and put it in a test tube and show that it exists, that it exists. Okay, so those, those are the, the three, in broad terms, the three operating laws of that Western worldview. The Eastern or the pre-modern worldview is slightly different. It goes like this. There is a transcendent world beyond ours, which includes God, eternity. In Africa, they talk about Nkulunkulu, the high God. They talk about, in the Hindu culture, Vishnu and Siva and thousands of others. Uh, make sure that you've got a God to cover every particular detail of your life and almost every cell of your body and every eventuality. And then included in that are the other gods that people name and principles like karma and, uh, and of course, the gods of Islam and um, and. Uh, Hinduism and Buddhism, etc. And then there is the empirical world of our senses. Science, empirical observation, experience, natural order, disasters, human relationships, etc., etc. So the same things in the material world as we saw earlier. And in, the, in this particular worldview, there is a strong sense that the two are connected. And they are connected by supernatural forces that operate in this realm. So, for example, spirits, ghosts, ancestors, demons, gods, goddesses, supernatural forces, magic, sorcery, witchcraft, angels, miracles, and all spiritual manifestations. And there's no um, kind of... It's a no-brainer. People with that worldview, when something supernatural happens, they don't go... <gasps> My goodness! They very often think that's, that's the way it is. They don't have any... Most, most African people, for example, don't have any problem realizing that when there's drought, uh, we need to pray or we need to sacrifice to the ancestors. In other words, we need to do something to bring about a connection between heaven and its goodness and earth and its problems. We, we can do something and we can... In some way, whether it's through magic, witchcraft, ancestors, sacrifices, etc., or prayers, we can manipulate the connection. That's part of the of that particular worldview. 
So what are the operating laws in this worldview? First and foremost, they are experiential. They assume that, uh, that things are only real or they are, they, yeah, they're only really real when I've experienced them. So, and, and, and intuition plays a big part in that, in that um, aspect of how we connect. So, for example, when it comes to experiential, um, children in Asia, Chinese children, were, were once uh, asked this question. They were taught this principle in geography or natural science or whatever it was. And it went like this. Tea grows in high-lying, warm, humid climates. England is a low-lying, cold humid or damp climate. Does tea grow in England? That was the exam question. The exam question was, ergo, does tea grow in England? 95% of the children wrote this answer. I don't know because I've never been to England. So they don't work on a logical basis. They work on an experiential basis. I'll only know if tea grows in England when I go to England. Quite a reasonable response, isn't it? So, for the second aspect of, or the second law that operates here is supernaturalistic. Everything that changes some aspect of reality has an ultimate, or in many cases, a supernatural cause. A supernatural cause. It is also a world that is much more open to the spiritual realm. And so, they, for them, the materialistic doesn't answer every question. You have to go into another place. And so, a place where, where um, there, will, there will be a spiritual explanation for most things. Um, okay, so we, we're not going to spend a lot of time there. The biblical or Hebraic worldview is a different, uh, slightly different version. It's one, it's quite interesting that the Middle East is between the East and the West. It's quite interesting that it is it, uh, almost like a bridge, not only geographically between East and West, but even philosophically. Uh, and so let's particularly, with regard to signs and wonders, supernatural things, let's just uh, look at, very quickly at what the Hebraic worldview was. Uh, understand that the Bible is an Eastern book. It's more Eastern than Western, even though it is Middle Eastern, but it, it has m m most of its influences are, are Eastern. It, the, the worldview about the supernatural is that those things are natural and acceptable. No big deal. Um, so, you know, when, when somebody encountered an angel in the Bible, you, you, found, you find that most, the, the people that spoke to them afterwards didn't go, oh, you did what? You encountered a what? This is amazing. We must build a shrine. They just said, what did he say? The angel spoke to you. What did he say? They probably said it like that. Oy vey, what did he say? God is concerned with our total 
reality. He's not only concerned with our souls and our spirits, he is concerned with the whole of life. And so people got as spiritually excited uh, when a child was born in a home as they did when, uh, when there was a, a miracle of some kind. It, 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 they're in the same rank. It's, it's just God is in charge of this life. And so they celebrate every aspect. God is revealed by power encounter, not argument. Paul says it like that, doesn't he, when he speaks about an apostle. He says, I didn't come to you with words to, to um, convince you, but I did the works. And by the works, you must decide if this, is, if this message of mine is kosher. Signs and wonders are naturally attributed to God. God who is good, who is merciful, and who loves to bless his people. Signs and wonders do not require mysticism, weirdness, and hype, but occur as part of a naturally supernatural lifestyle. It's just the kind of thing that would happen. And, and, and it's not like the East, where in order to make someone into a mystic or a godly person or a shaman or a witch doctor or anything, that you've got to do something weird, you know, like tie their limbs so that they become uh, crippled and bent because that somehow sets them up for a greater degree of God's sympathy. Um, and therefore God will speak to them more. So people do that. They still do that in some Eastern countries. They bind the limb of a child so that that child grows up without, uh, with some kind of uh, um, deformity and and dedicate the child to some god or demon, and that will open them up to uh, things. So, there are a lot of people who associate spirituality with mysticism, or with, when I say mysticism, I, don't, I know that there are good forms of mysticism, I'm talking about the weirdos. You, you know, you don't, you don't know any weirdos, do you? I've known a couple of weirdos. But you've got to, kind of assume the position and you've got to go funny and you've got to like go like a chuk chuk train to before before God speaks and and stuff and and, and whipping up a kind of a, a level of faith and energy and uh, etc um, anyway we, we, we won't spend a lot of time there you, you guys remember this picture don't you when you look at the picture on the right, do you see a beautiful young lady or do you see an old hag? How many see an old hag? How many of you see a beautiful young lady? How many of you see both? How many of you see neither? <laughs> How many of you can see the old lady but cannot for the life of you see the beautiful... Uh, sorry. How many of you see the hag, but cannot for the life of you see the old lady? The, be the beautiful young lady, sorry. The beautiful young lady. Okay. I'll, I'll show it to you very quickly. One of the, one of the keys is your, your way of looking is going to be important here. Whoopsie. My battery has gone flat. Not my battery, but, you know, the battery of this thing. Um... If you look from the bottom left and you look as though you were looking upward into the face, you will see the old lady more readily, the old hag. 
more readily. readily. And uh, so what you see is her nose. What you see at the bottom is her chin, which is, which is hidden in the first stall, and the, her mouth, which is like a slit. And then you see a big nose with a wart on it. And then you see her eyes looking back at you as you look up from the bottom left corner of, this, of the picture. Okay? If you look from the right-hand side, you will see the young lady, and she is looking away from you. That's the, that's the trick about seeing her. She, you're not looking at her face. You're seeing her looking into the distance toward the top left. And what you see is her jawline. What is the old lady's nose is actually the young lady's jawline. As she looks away from you, and you see her ear sticking out of the hair, and you see her, ch her cheek, um, quite a sleek cheek, and instead of uh, the mouth, that, that is actually a choker on her neck that just disappears into the stall. Are you seeing it now? Do you see her eyelash, her eyelashes as she looks away from you? Okay. <laughs> I'll, I'll leave it up for a little while. <clears throat> now, I just did a little exercise trying to help you to change your paradigm, to change your view of the thing. And what, a, what parents have to do most of the time is they have to help their children see reality the parents' way. Okay? Because that's how you have peace in the home, is when the children see things the way the parents teach them to see those things. So most of us see things dependent on how we've been trained to look. Got it! <laughs> Jonathan got it. <laughs> Jesus then, again, I've referenced this text before. He said, whatever the, the son can do nothing by himself. He does only what he sees the father doing. Whatever the father does, the son also does. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him everything He is doing. How do you change a paradigm? The first thing we saw in the first text, the sermon of Jesus. Repent. Change the way you think. Do not assume that Jesus comes to your life just to make a better version of who you've always been. He's not interested. He's interested in wrecking you completely and remaking you completely. He's only interested in regeneration. That's why he called it, you can only see the kingdom of God if you are born anew. A new beginning. A totally, and in fact, Paul later talks about that as a new kind, a new species of being. If anyone is in Christ, he is what? A new creation. Not just a, not just a child, a human child starting over but a, a new kind of being with a new beginning. So the new birth is the key. Repentance is the key. Mind renewal. Paul says, um, be transformed by the renewing of your mind or the way you think, your nous, your noose. Be transformed by the renewing of that thing. And all of those together are keys to ongoing, maturing, and ultimately complete paradigm shift. Now, here's the bad news and the good news at the same time. You can change the way you think. That's the good news. The bad news is 
you're going to have to do it lots and lots and lots of times over. Every time we encounter God, we are getting another opportunity to change. God never leaves you the same way, no matter what the encounter is, whether it's a worship encounter, whether it's in prayer, whether it's in those dramatic ones where the Lord just shows up and smacks you upside the head. And sometimes the change is more dramatic than other times, but hear this, God loves you as you are, but he loves you too much to leave you as you are. And so there's that text again in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And so we come to a concept called heaven on earth. And here's what you need to understand. I'm going to make another couple of disclaimers here. I don't believe in the thing that says we have to in some way make heaven come to earth. I, I know that there's some popular stuff out there that talks about creating an open heaven, for example. That's a phrase that some people use. Jesus created an open heaven as the last drop of his blood was shed on the cross. And it says the veil in the temple was torn from top to bottom, and heaven has been open ever since. We don't have to make it open. We don't have to climb up into heaven in order to bring it down so that we may hear it and do it. We just have to realize what Jesus has done, which is that he has made us the children of heaven living on earth. We live in both realities, heaven and earth. Jesus came and told his disciples, I've been given all authority in heaven and on earth, therefore go and make disciples and be sure of this, I am with you always. You see, again, when, where's Jesus now? Do we, do we have to go like this to see Jesus? No, we just have to focus on a reality that exists within us right now. Jesus Christ lives in you by faith. The living Jesus is in you by faith. The church, when the church gathers together, Mary Ellen said it earlier, when the church gathers together, Jesus is among us. And so, in one sense, he was here before us. In another sense, he comes here more strongly when he, because you, he came with you. And so, if you like, there's more of Jesus in the room after you arrive than before you arrive. It's a bit of a mystery, I know. It's a bit, it's a bit strange, but it's true. Jesus' presence comes in some things, it comes more strongly into, into a place and into a situation. Uh, we call those times of revival. I think they're just New Testament Christianity, actually. But, uh, yeah. you, and, and, and of course, we read these stories in the Bible of how when Jesus, when God entered the room, when they were praying, remember? They were, and, and when God entered the room, the whole place shook. It's like God doesn't know how big he is, so he kind of ran in the door to come and greet his kids, and he forgot that he's too big for the doorway. So the whole building shakes. And, and, and where does a 400-kilogram like gorilla sit when he comes to your house? 
wherever he likes, right? <coughs> when Paul writes to the Ephesians particularly, he repeatedly uses this phrase, in heavenly places or in the heavenly realms. Here are a few of the references, in fact, all of them. God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms, in Christ Jesus. He, he, Christ is seated and we are seated with him at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. He raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms. Now Paul is writing to people who were living on earth. And yet he's saying to them, you're sitting in heaven. You're seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. To use the church to display his wisdom in its rich variety to unseen rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. We wrestle, what? Against rulers, against authorities, against principalities, against powers, against evil spirits in the heavenly places. So, that doesn't mean that you leave this planet and in order to engage in spiritual wrestling, spiritual warfare. That, that happens where, on the ground, on the earth. It happens as you're talking to someone and you are pulling down the strongholds in their mind of unbelief and fear and the rejection of Jesus. You, when you're doing that, you are wrestling against spiritual, spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly realms. And they're running for cover when they hear you speaking the gospel. Because the gospel is far stronger than them. Far stronger. So, what Paul is saying is we live in these two dimensions. And what we've got to get used to is opening our eyes in that other realm, that other dimension of life. We've got to get used to having our ears, not up there somewhere, but our ears just popping open into a, into a place that's in the same room as we are at the same time. Now, how, what that is, and this is also what we'll talk about tomorrow, what that is, is exercising spiritual gifts, because the link between heaven and earth is spiritual gifts. The thing that links them in tangible ways is miracles and healings. And a word of knowledge. What is a word of knowledge? It is simply something that God knows that you didn't know and you wouldn't have known unless God whispered it in your ear. A word of wisdom, a prophecy, a revelation, a tongue, an interpretation of tongues. How does that happen? It happens because you hear something with with spiritual ears that is actually in the room all the time. You don't have to go and manufacture it. You don't have to go and find it anywhere. It's just here. Jesus, speaking about the Holy Spirit's ministry in us, said, the Holy Spirit will lead you into all truth. The world, this age, this, this dimension, cannot receive Him because it isn't looking for Him and doesn't recognize Him. But you know Him because He lives with you now and later will be in you. Soon the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. You will see me. So, are we used to seeing Jesus? Because until we see Jesus and look like Jesus, we will not be able to minister like Jesus. This is the thing. That's why church is practice, right? See, when we come together like this, when we come together on a Sunday, that's the practice ground. 
That's where we get used to seeing things differently, seeing a different reality. And you see, it's supposed to be like this, that church is the place where you can try and fail and still be okay. You get some wrong, and then every so often you get one right, and you say, I must remember how I did that. And then you try and do it again the next time. What song were we singing? I must just sing that song again, and maybe I'll get the same, <laughs> the same result, right? And, uh, but we, always will, we will always be seeing through a glass darkly. And hopefully our, our sunglasses get a little lighter as we grow up in Jesus. Hopefully. But I still don't know anyone. They said about one person, and I think it was a heresy to say it, that they said none of his words fall to the ground. They said that about the prophet Samuel. None of his words fall to the ground. In other words, every prophecy he gave was accurate. 100% accurate. I don't think there's been many since him. So here's, how, here's what I want you to do about yourself. Is forgive yourself in advance for the fact that you're going to get a whole lot wrong on the way to getting things right. Forgive yourself in advance. Just say, that's me. I am, I am an imperfect vessel. I'm a clay vessel. I carry a wonderful treasure. But every so often there's more of the clay invisible than the treasure. Every so often, <laughs> when, uh, when, the, when the clay jar cracks, they just, they just see the crack. What it becomes visible is just the fact that I'm a crackpot. She's quick, eh? She's quite quick. The Holy Spirit, Jesus said, will teach you everything and will remind you of everything I've told you. There's a constant dialogue. Here's, here's what Jesus is saying. There's a constant dialogue going in, on inside you. The Holy Spirit is always speaking. Always speaking. Always speaking. I have used this example here before, but it's like right now in this room, there are sound, sound waves that you can't hear. There's a, there's a radio station that's playing classical music, right? Going across about there. And then there's Radio 5. It's going across about there. And then there's some person talking rubbish. One of the talk shows. Right? And then there's, there's, uh, there's a, probably a Zulu station going on over there. And then there's... There's uh, some other program going on over there, and there's a community radio station, and there's even probably a preacher preaching somewhere in the room. And some of them, we pray that God will please never allow our unchurched friends to ever find that radio frequency. <laughs> I pray that about religious television all the time. But why can't you hear those sound waves? You haven't got the mechanism, and even if you did have one, like some of you have got it on, probably on your cell phones, it's not plugged in and tuned in to the right frequency. doesn't mean the sounds are not here, it just means that you're not, you haven't tuned the receiver. You see, so Christ, the Christian life is all about learning how to tune the receiver. 
the receiver that is able to pick up this wonderful broadcast of God's love and grace and mercy and goodness and how he wants to link that reality with this reality. And, and you and I are a little bit like Isaiah, caught in a bit of a fix because the Lord showed up and then he said, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? I love that story. I preached on it a couple of weeks ago. I love that story. You know why? Because Isaiah was the only dude in the house when God said that. I mean, how blatant is God? How like transparent of you, Lord. He comes into the temple. Isaiah is the priest doing duty that day. And he goes, hmm, let's see. Whom shall I send? Isaiah goes, well, here am I. <laughs> Don't see anybody else in the house. Unfortunately for us, you know, there, there, there are more prophets now than there were in Isaiah's day. You know, he was one guy. And he became a very unpopular prophet. They eventually sawed him in half. But, uh, but, 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 but here's Isaiah. And, and so Isaiah, uh, rather, now we're in the church and it says, you may all prophesy. You may all. You can all, you can all hear the Lord. You may all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged. Isn't that cool? See, the problem is, that when we hear all, we think it's all those others. Because there's so many of them, we say, pick someone else. God goes, whom shall I send? We say, hey, listen, Jonathan's good. Pick him. Pick him. Pick him. Pick him. Especially when we hear that prophets get sawn in half. Pick him. <laughs> or stoned with stones. Pick her. Pick her. So the very, the very problem, the, the very remedy that God had, which was he was going to multiply spiritual gifts throughout the entire body of Christ, and all of you may use spiritual gifts from now on. That very fact is, uh, is the thing we're using as an excuse. And so... What we've done is we've made church into spectator sport, where we come and we watch some people minister like Jesus. <laughs> and then when they do, we make them famous. And we buy them a tent. And we get them a magazine and their own te television program. And three-piece suit. Because they can minister like Jesus. And then, when someone is sick in our neighborhood, we have to go and find one of those oaks who can minister like Jesus to come and fix them, right? That's not the New Testament. The New Testament is this. Go and make disciples of all the people so that they all learn how to do what I've commanded you to do, which is what? Preach the good news, cast out their demons, release them from their oppressions, heal their sicknesses, and tell them the kingdom of God is here on that basis. That's our job. He didn't change it. He didn't change it between Matthew 10 and Matthew 28. The only change that he made is that he said, in Matthew 10, he said, just only go to the Jews. And in 28, he says, go to all the Goyim. Include the Gentiles now. 
Now this is for everybody. You're going to need all the people to do all the works of the kingdom for the, all of the church age so that God will receive all the glory. The spirit of truth, says Jesus, will come to you from the Father and he will testify all about me. The spirit of truth will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own, but he will tell you what he has heard. He will bring me glory by telling you whatever he receives from me. Now, this is a wonderful thing, and we are going to talk about this probably on Sunday. But, um, but the wonderful picture of a trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, always in a holy huddle, uh, sharing the secrets of who God is, what he is like, and what he is up to. Talking talking between themselves in the same way as the Father said in, in the beginning, whom shall I send and who will go for us? It's the Trinity having a conversation with itself, if you'll pardon the expression, itself. But I mean that him, him and him and him, self. Him and him and herself, no. Anyway, we're getting complicated now. Don't quote me on this, okay, because... I've got enough people calling me a heretic already. So, so the, but the point is that, and, and this is a picture. One time I was, when I was in Bible college, we had a guy came and he, and he talked about prayer in the fifth dimension, which is the dimension of, of the heavenly realms, the heavenly places. And, and one of the, the picture that he used that, has cha- that changed my prayer life forever was this one of that we are seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. And when we pray, especially when we pray in tongues, because what does Paul say about when you pray in tongues? When you pray in a a tongue, you speak mysteries in in heaven. You speak mysteries in the heavenly realm. And so as you're doing that, you know what's actually going on? You're sitting next to Jesus, between Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and the Father. You're kind of wound up and bound up and embraced and as the Father says to the Son, uh, you know what I think we're going to do? I think we're going to bless that person at number 21 Ridge Road in Hillcrest. We're going to do a thing. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. And you're right in the middle and you're listening to it all. You're going, yeah, yeah, yes, that's what I want to do. And then it happens and you go, wow, I can pray. Isn't my faith amazing? See, my prayers changed their lives. All you did was you overheard a conversation between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and you said, I agree. And, and you became the big shot. You became the engineer. <laughs> you weren't the engineer. You were just the, uh, you were the uh, fan. You were the part of the fan club. You went, you go get him, God. We, we simply... We, That's what Jesus means when he says, if any two or three of you agree, it's touching anything. What does he mean? Agree not only between yourselves and go to God and say, listen, we've had a conference and we are presenting a petition to you and uh, we're in agreement about it and so what do you think? The Lord goes, eh, eh. Now there's some other people that are asking a very different, it's like, you know, I always feel sorry for God when, when I used to feel sorry for God when, uh, 
when we would be uh, playing cricket and the rain was coming and one team wanted the rain to come and was saying, please send rain because we're going to lose this game. And the other guys are going, please keep the rain away because we want to win this game. And the farmers are going, let the rain come, but no hail. And, and, and so God, so you can imagine the Lord going, now, which one must I, which one am I supposed to listen to? Which, you know, it will be like a meteorological minefield if God were to listen to all our prayers or agree on our terms. Prayer is not about getting God to agree to us. Prayer is an exercise in learning how to find out what God is up to and agree with that. It's a, it's a process of forming our spirits in His image. It's a process of letting the Christ who is our Lord and to whom we have surrendered everything, let Him actually shape the way we think, shape the way we pray, shape the way we feel toward other people. And again, by the way, this is a kind of a process with ever-rising hurdles. You see, it is the trouble. The, the, the longer you go, the more the Lord says, hey, stretch those legs. I can see your legs are longer than you say they are. And you're going, hmm. And he said, lift the stupid leg. And you can get over a height that you would not have believed. By my God, says David, I can run through a troop. I can leap over a wall. I can bend bows of bronze. Now, he didn't start there. He started with just a sling. Started with a little boy's bow and arrow. But by the time he had learned God, he was bending bows of bronze. See, all of us have to exercise what we have so that we can get more. That's the process of coming to spiritual maturity and usefulness. Listen to the Holy Spirit and He'll tell you more. Act on what the Holy Spirit does and He'll show you more. Again, I think of Jesus, ministering like Jesus. I did an exercise some years ago. This is how I came into this deal that I'm in now, is that uh, I was, um, I felt the Lord say to me, uh, I want you to teach a series, preach a series on healing. And I was in a Pentecostal church, for goodness sake. Of course, we, you know, we believe in healing. And so, I started an exercise of studying the Bible and reading everything I could lay my hands on and find, found a couple of books as well, other than the Bible. And I was wanting to learn, but my first place, first port of call was the Bible. And I thought this, I want to find out what is the pattern of healing in the life and ministry of Jesus. And you know, I, I, I got so frustrated because I found out there was no pattern. One time when there was a blind guy, he spoke to him. He said, eyes open. Another time he spits in his eyes. Another time he spits on the ground and makes clay and massages it into his eyeballs. And then says, go and wash in the pool. I'm going, why? Why didn't you just have like one r recipe? You know, one, uh, one like uh, prescription. Blind oaks, this is how you fix them. Deaf people, this is how you fix them. You know? So, 
So I found out this thing, and, and then the Lord showed me this thing. He said, you need to understand that ministry is not about techniques. Ministry is about relationship. That's why the Father was constantly, so, so here is Jesus, and, he's, and yesterday he had this blind guy, and he said, I will, you can open those eyes, be healed. Touched his eyes and healed him. The next day he's there and there's another blind guy. And you can almost think, and I know that Jesus didn't actually do this, but you can almost picture the thing. Okay, let's just put our hands out and the Father says, no, 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 today we're spitting on the ground. Huh? And he did. He spat on the ground, made the clay, put it in the guy's eyes. And every word that Jesus was saying was an echo of what he was hearing in heaven. He said, now go and wash in the pool. And so, uh, and so what he was doing was demonstrating this, that ministry is about relationship. Ministry is about listening to the Father and speaking what you hear. Ministry is about watching the Father in action and doing what he does. Now, we have a great advantage uh, over the way Jesus had to do it, although he also had... A, other advantages. What, what was the single advantage of Jesus? What is his advantage? Hmm? He, he was? No, he wasn't. He didn't operate as God. We'll come to that as well. Day after tomorrow. Sinless. He had no dark glasses on. We see through a glass darkly because we've clouded our vision with the rubbish that we've applied our eyes to over, the, over many years, Right? Jesus never had that. His eyes were pure. His spiritual eyes were pure. So he could see and hear heaven perfectly. Uh, so, so, but here's our advantage. You know what our advantage is? He left us a book. And so we read the book, and what we find in the book is, again, not techniques, but the dynamics of a relationship. And so it goes like this. The, here are the dynamics of the relationship which enabled the eyes of Jesus to see and the ears of Jesus to hear. These are the dynamics. Number one, he knew that God is good. Number two, he knew that his father loved him. This is my son, my beloved, with whom I am well pleased. And in fact, nothing he ever does will ever displease me. Okay, so he knew that. So you remember this, I've said it many times in this church. Nothing you will ever do will ever make God love you less than he loves you right now. And, by the way, nothing that you ever do will ever make God love you more than he loves you right now. He loves you perfectly. That's why there's no, there's no break in the transmission. There's no break in the, in the line between heaven and, you, and your ear. It's the only thing that cuts that off. What did Jeremiah say? My ear is not deaf that I cannot hear, nor is my arm too short that I cannot save, but your sins have made a separation between you and me so that I do not hear you, says the Lord. What happened? We sang about it tonight. What happened to those sins? Washed away. Washed away. Washed away. God looks at you and he just can't help himself. He thinks, oh, my kids, I love them. 
Anything you say. It's like me and my grandchildren. Anything they ask. Anything they ask. They want sugar at 8 o'clock at night. They get it. And, your, and the parents, you come here. You don't touch, you don't touch that child. I do, I do, I do. I do. I love it. And then I leave, you know. <laughs> and it's 9 o'clock and they, they've got to peel them off the walls. Hallelujah. Such fun. Okay, so. Are you right? You want to do another 10 minutes? Stand up quickly. Stand up. Hug somebody. Oh, the knees, the knees. I know. I know the knees. <laughs> okay, we'll do another 10 minutes and we'll finish at quarter two. Is that fine? I know that you people go to bed early in KZN. All right. I want to just um, go back very briefly to the thing of, of how you change a paradigm. It's in your notes, I think, eh? How you, how you change a paradigm. So it's repentance, the new birth, mind renewal. And I, I want to just add one last thing um, to that, which is that not only do we have to have a different perception of ourselves in relation to God, we also have to have make sure that our will is not resisting him. Jesus said it like this, if anyone wills to do his will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God. If anyone wills to do his will. So there's a, you see, the Pharisees had a will problem. They, 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 they operated on this basis. They said, our minds are made up. Don't confuse us with facts. We know, they said. We, you know the blind, the blind guy that was at the pool? Uh, no? The, 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 the lame guy that was at the pool. And, uh, and he gets healed and, and uh, he comes bounding in and they say, and you? What happened to you? And he said, that rabbi, that carpenter guy, carpenter rabbi, by vocational carpenter rabbi, he healed me. They say, we know that this man is a sinner. It couldn't have been him. So they said, we know, and they put that up as the barrier that prevented them finding the kingdom of God in the miracle. Instead, what they saw was their own bitterness reflected back from the miracle. See, so many people do that. We do that with one another. We say, this can't be good because it comes from that person. I know that person. That person is not a good person. You know? I don't like the way he combs his hair. So it can't, it can't be a good person. You know? Can any good thing come from Donald Trump? Oh, sorry. Um, so, yeah. So we, so we all have our, we all have our, um, our prejudices that get in the way. And what that does... And that's why Jesus said, you know, this is actually what will put you in danger of blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. When you call evil good or, or good evil. Just because of your prejudices. So he said, don't do that, don't do that, don't go there. Don't go there. So, somebody said it like this. 
Our problem in terms of change of our minds, renewing of our minds, is not what we don't know. That's not what will hinder us. It's what we think we do know. Not what we actually know, but what we think we know is a greater hindrance to mind renewal than anything else. That's why Paul said, constantly, bring that mind. Be, surrender, submit yourselves. Present your body a living sacrifice. Go to God and say, God, this is, let my mind, my heart, my body, my life be a clean slate that you can write a new story on. Because I'm sick of this one. Anybody got there? Have you got there? To where your thinking... Your thought processes aren't doing you a heck of a lot of good. So we need the Lord to fix them. So here's what I'm going to finish with is this little piece about the kingdom of God. So in the beginning, and you've all seen these diagrams before, but, but this is how I want us to begin to look at life through the lens of the kingdom of God. In the beginning, there was a kingdom of God in heaven. God's will was perfectly carried out in that kingdom. In that realm, everything God wanted was done. Nobody argued. Nobody rebelled. And then he created a world. And in this world, on earth, he put, he put humanity to reflect him. Okay? To be his icon, his image. And, and so... So that the world, angels, demons, uh, 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 um, animals, everything, would see God reflected from the way that humanity lived and dealt. And so the purpose of God was his will being carried out on earth as it is in heaven. There was perfect communion and communication that went from heaven to earth. It's only a picture, okay? Top to bottom. Heaven to earth. And then came the snake. You remember. The snake and the woman. <laughs> anyway, uh, when the Lord came around at the end of that evening, he, he uh, challenged Adam, and Adam blamed Eve, and Eve blamed the snake, and the snake didn't have a leg to stand on. Um, so... And, 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 of course, the result of that is trouble. Pain in childbirth, uh, pain in work life, you know, basically a work life that will resist you for the rest of your days and cause you to earn your bread by the sweat of your brow and, and opposition in human terms and opposition from your wife and opposition from, <laughs> from demons. So that was, that was the reality. I am, eh? Oh, didn't I, didn't I say husbands? Uh. Mm. Uh, and so time continued. And uh, that was what we call the present age, the this present evil age is what Paul calls it in Galatians. And uh, the prophets begin to prophesy from early on. In fact, from Genesis already, Moses records this prophecy that says, the seed of the woman is going to come and he will crush the head of the serpent. 
and he will bring deliverance to his people. And it's it's going to come. It's going to come. Deliverance. Freedom. It's going to come. The prophets begin to prophesy. They say, there's a day coming. We call it the day of the Lord. The day of the Most High. When the Lord will come and shake his big bunch of keys and say, it's closing time. This age is shutting down and there's a different age. An age of peace, of shalom that is going to come into the world. This present age will be superseded, it will be interrupted by the day of the Lord and superseded by what is called by the prophets, the age to come. A king will rule in righteousness. And there, wherever the ki- where the king rules, there will be shalom, there will be peace. There will be peace in the forests, there will be peace in the fields, there will be peace in the cattle and peace in the flocks and peace between the budgies and peace between the people and there will be prosperity and there won't be any taxes and everything is going to be like this amazing time. Your enemies will flee before you. There will be no enemies left. But peace is not only the absence of war but the presence of God's goodness, God's goodwill toward human beings. So the prophets prophesied. They spoke about it. You can read about it in a lot of places. Isaiah, especially chapters 32 to 39, you'll read all about uh, this age to come. Provision, health, deliverance, and even resurrection from the dead. And and so the prophets began, or the rabbis began to use this phrase. They talked about when God comes, the gift that he will put into your life as you gather before him will be the life of the age, the life of the age to come. And there's a direct translation of that phrase in the Greek term that we translate eternal life. Just by the way. Zi aonias. Zoe aonias means the life of the age. We translate it. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life, the life of the age. God takes something of an age that is still to come and he drops it into the heart of a person living in this age. That's called salvation. You did not just receive forgiveness of your sins. You did not just receive a ticket to heaven and the insurance policy against hell, you received a deposit of a life that will not only never end, but a life that will not suffer any, any setbacks, that will not stop for any obstacle, that will not be destroyed or, or distracted or pulled down by any pain, problem, sin, difficulty, demon, or any other thing. The good news is really good. The good news is really, 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 really good. We need to open our eyes to see how good it is. Because that's what we've received. So, the key, the key concept in a biblical worldview is this. The kingdom of God has come. It is the dynamic rule of God breaking in to this world into this reality. So here's what happened. The present age was continuing, and the day of the Lord was to come, and the age to come was to come, 
And then God sent, and it contained all those things, and then God sent his son. And it says when the time had fully come. But actually, you know what God did? He just got impatient with this present evil age. And he sent the future into the present, in the person of Jesus. When Jesus came, do you remember what the first, one of the first encounters with demons that he had? You know, do you remember what, what the demon said? Why have you come to torment us before the time? You have come. We know that our number is up. We know that there's a day coming when we will all be put into that pit. But you've come before the time. How dare you? You see, the, the rabbis also, the teachers of the law, they also they knew about this age to come. And so when Jesus said, because by the way, one of the things that's in that, in that basket over there is forgiveness of sin. So they lower a guy through the roof, remember? Comes into the church, into the middle of the church. And Jesus' first words to him, with a big grin on his face, he said, Son, he looked at their faith. That's a lesson by itself. Because of their faith, he says to this guy, your sins are forgiven you. And the rabbi said, Who does this man think he is to forgive sins? They were, they were thinking it in their hearts. And Jesus said, Ah, you think, you think that, uh, that I don't have that authority, right? You think that I'm jumping the gun, that it's, I'm ahead of the time. And so he said, But so that you may know. That the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Let me take another part of the basket of shalom and give it to this man. So he says, you, be healed, get up, take up your bed and go. And he jumps up, rolls up his mat, and he walks out of the room. And they say, <gasps> they were amazed. Because the age to come had just landed in the present. In the form of healing and forgiveness of sins. So Jesus did that, and every miracle that Jesus did was another demonstration of the age to come, breaking into the present. When he went to the cross, the cross was the place where finally the veil was torn, and the age to come became available in this world. And of course, the resurrection proved it. The resurrection was proof that here was a person who had a physical form, who could be touched and held, and who could let you put your finger in the scars in his hands. By the way, the only person in heaven that's going to have scars, Jesus. And, and, uh, and, then, uh, and he had a fish bry with his guys and everything. But he was also able to walk through walls. He was also able to... Um, to continue to live in a, different, in a different dimension. He shone, he glowed, he glowed in the dark. And so, fast forward another 40 days, 50 days, to Pentecost. And the day of Pentecost, again, the age to come broke in. You know what Paul calls the Holy Spirit? The power of the age to come. The power of the age to come broke in, and that formed the church. And the church lives in the age that straddles the ages. 
we are an amazing schizophrenic bunch. Because we live with one foot in heaven and the other foot in this present age. We straddle the, the, the ages. We are what George Eldon Ladd called the presence of the future. We are the presence. The church is the presence of the future. We need to behave a little more like it, but that's what we actually are. We are the presence of the future. Because, by the way, in that age to come, everyone will love one another. There will be no enmity, no animosity. There will be no denominations. <laughs> They're all going to find out that we were right all along, but there won't be any, there won't be any barriers between the Christians, you know. This Christian life is the thing that straddles the ages. And so our job is to get used to that. Here's what I'm going to finish with. Jesus teaches the disciples to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Let that age to come fully come. That's what we're, we're asking. Not only let it come fully, but let it come now. Let it break in to this situation that I'm in right now. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then it says this phrase. And I want you to remember this one. Give us today, and here's a, a translation that I've checked with a whole lot of authorities, and it's a perfectly valid translation of the phrase. Give us today the bread of tomorrow. It doesn't only say give us this day our daily bread. It means give us today the bread of the age to come. Do you remember when a woman wanted, to be, wanted her daughter to be healed? No, wanted to be healed. Syrophoenician woman. Daughter. Right, daughter. And, and Jesus said, uh, is it right to take the bread and give it to the dogs? And he was using it, uh, it sounds terrible, it sounds like an insult. He was using a Jewish term for Gentiles. And so, uh, and so she says, no, but if the bread is on the, ta on the floor, even the dogs can lick it up, lick, it, lick up the crumbs. And he said, that's faith. Your faith has made you whole. And so, and so healing is the bread of the children. Today we can have tomorrow's bread. When everyone will be healed. Now, what we need to understand about this kingdom is that it has come, but it has not fully come. It has been fulfilled, but not consummated. Which is the reason why, it, because it has come, Jesus healed some people. But be, it is not consummated because he didn't heal everybody. He raised a couple of dead people. But when it has fully come, all the dead will be raised. And every so often we get to hear, today, Lazarus. Today we're going to do Lazarus. We're going to fix him. He's smelly already, but we're going to fix him. So our job is to try to discern, to see. That's another way of saying it, discernment. To, dis to see the things that are invisible. And to become the agents that take 
some of the bread of tomorrow and give it to the children today. Okay? We're done. Let's stand. Yes. Yes. Yes, oh yes, thank you. Um, a very quick answer to that question. Jesus was God and man at the same time. Is God and man at the same time. But here's what Paul tells us in Philippians. And there, there are a number of other places that explain it as well. Is that he says, Philippians chapter 2, who did not hold on to his equality with God, but emptied himself, surrendered his rights as God, and became in fashion as a man and, was, and took on himself the form of a servant and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. So here's the thing. When Jesus agreed to come to this earth, he actually laid aside his rights as God. So here's what I believe, and Acts 10.38 tells us this. It says, How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power and he went about doing good and healing all those that were oppressed of the devil. As a man. As a man. He was a man anointed by the Holy Spirit in his earthly ministry. It doesn't mean that his rank as God, his, his position as God was ever taken away from him. But he surrendered his rights to use those, the power of his deity. Because he, that's the reason why he could say, the works that I do, you will do also. If Jesus was operating as God, he could never say that. He said it as a man because he knew men were going to continue this ministry. Men and women were going to continue this ministry. You see? So um, we need to understand that. And I know that there are some people that accuse people who say this of heresy. But understand that we're only specifically talking in the context of Jesus' earthly ministry, life and ministry. Uh, where he laid aside his rights as God. And what happened after that was God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name because of that obedience and that surrender. Okay? We'll talk again tomorrow. Let's stand.